Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks Downloadable Messages. This week, Lead Pastor Mike Yearly begins a brand new seven-part series entitled The Company of the Committed, Seven Habits of a Healthy Church. And today he'll bring us the first message of this series entitled Pleasing God, Our Top Priority. Father, thank you so much that we can be here and that we can come and sit around your word and, and say, Father, speak to us. We're so anxious to hear from you as your people. And so we're not coming here just to go through the motions. We're coming here to listen. We're coming here to listen so we can obey. And so we pray that you'd speak to us now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're starting a, uh, a brand new series called The Company of the Committed. And its uh, subtitle is Seven Habits of a Healthy Church. And if you were here last series, the last three weeks, we did a short series uh, they're called Doing Life Together, a fresh look at the ancient church. And what we did is we took three weeks, we went back to the ancient church in the New Testament to say, when God launched this new movement called the church, this new community, what was in his mind? What, what did he intend for it to be? And the whole point of that series was to, as we move into the fall, to kind of draw a target on the side of uh, our building here and say, okay, so this is what God is shooting for at Rocky Peak. This is what the church of Jesus Christ looks for. This is the kind of group that we want to be. But of course, it raises the question, well, how do we get there? How do we get from where we are to where we need to be? And so that's what this series is all about. What are the, the habits, what are the steps, what are the commitments we need to take and make in order to become a church like that? That would be a church that Jesus would say he's, he's really happy with. And so uh, this fall, we're going to be taking kind of one week on each of these seven habits. And we start off today with habit number one, and it is by far the most important of the seven habits. It's really an umbrella concept. In other words, um, that all the other six habits flow out of this particular one. And if we don't get this one right, then we might as well forget the rest. It's because it's like the rest are just not really important if we don't start with number one. And so it, it, uh, it starts like this. Habit one is pleasing God is our top priority. It's what you might call a habit of the heart. It's an attitude or approach towards life. And what I want to do today is I want to trace this through uh, the New Testament. You think uh, when Jesus came, he was once asked, uh, Jesus, of all the commandments in the Bible, in the Old Testament, which one is the most important? Which is one is like the top priority? What's God's top priority? And you remember, he said, well, that God's top priority is that we would love him with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. That's God's top priority, that we would be passionate about pleasing him. He says, that's what God's out, number one, that our habit number one of our life would be that we would please him. And what I want to do today is take some time and I want to trace this theme through the New Testament in three different ways. I want to look, first of all, at the life of Jesus. I want to see how this habit, habit number one, was the kind of core motivating driving force of his life. And then I want to come back and I want to move to Revelation, the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus dictates seven short letters, almost like emails, to seven specific churches in ancient Turkey. And he talks to them about what does it take to be a church that pleases him. And so we want to look at those. And then finally, we want to come back and look at a particular prayer from the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians, where he expresses his heart for the churches that he was helping to lead. And what we'll see all the way through, we're going to trace this through, how this habit 
runs through the whole uh, the whole Bible, the whole New Testament. Now, if you were here last spring, you know that we did a series called Eleven Laws to Live By. And in that series, I told you that these laws aren't laws that I'm making up. It's just that I'm labeling them. They, they really flow out of the New Testament. It's just kind of what God's Word says. Well, these seven habits we're going to look at is, are exactly the same way. That I'm not making up these habits. I'm just kind of putting a name to them, okay? And so what we're going to do today is we'll look at number one today, and then in each of the, the following uh, six weeks after, we will take a, a different one of these habits, see what the Bible says, why it's so important. And then at the very end of it, you're going to have the opportunity as a church we're going to decide, do we want to be part of the company of the committed together? We're actually going to have a banner. I don't know where to be. Maybe over here or something. It'll say the company committed to have the seven things on it. And we'll have an opportunity that day as part of our service during a time of worship. If you want to join the company, you'll actually get a chance to get up out of your chair and, and go and sign your name as a public statement, I'm in. I want to be where this church is going. I think God's in this thing. And so what that means is the next uh, six or seven weeks, you're going to have a chance to think and pray and to weigh this. Is this really of God? Is the Spirit leading us as a church in this direction? Do I want to commit myself publicly to that? So let's jump in. We want to trace this theme of this habit number one through the New Testament. And uh, the first spot we want to start is looking at the, uh, the life of Jesus. And you notice there on your notes, this is the driving force in his life. I don't know if you've ever wondered why Jesus does what Jesus does. Like, why does he do what he did? Why did he leave heaven? Why did he come to earth? Why did he die? Like, what is it? And I'm sure there's a variety of reasons, but if you study the Gospels, it becomes very clear that the number, reason, number one reason Jesus did what he did was not what you'd think of. of. Like, if I were to say, like, why did Jesus come to earth? I would think most of us would say because of his love for us. And certainly that's true. There's some truth to there. But I'll tell you what, if you study what Jesus said, you'll see something different. The number one reason why Jesus came was because of his love for his father. This was the deepest motivating uh, factor in his life. In fact, remember, Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love God with everything, and then second was to love our neighbor, right? Well, he lived out that principle in his life. The deepest drive of his life was not to love us. The deepest drive was to love his father. And we'll see that in his own words. Um, there in your note sheet, I put several statements that the Apostle John recorded for us in his gospel. Of course, John was Jesus' very closest friend. And he records some statements of Jesus, not in the other gospels, that give us an insight into the psyche of Jesus, into the heart of Jesus, what made him tick. And we're going to spend some time on this. We're going to walk through these. And as I read each one, I want us to sit down with each statement and let it sink in. Like the, like the waves of the seashore want to wash over us. Let it, let it, drink it in. Take it in. And I want you to listen to what Jesus says about what motivates him in his life, okay? And of course, this is important because if we're going to follow Jesus, the whole point is to be like Jesus, Right? And, and if it's the driving force of his life, then that means that this is to be the driving force of our life. So let's jump in. Our first one, John 4, 34. Uh, Jesus is at, talking with the woman at the well. You remember that, the Samaritan woman? He sends his guys into town to get some lunch. They come back with Big Mac or whatever, Happy Meal. They're ready for him. They said, Jesus, we got your food. We know you're starving. And he says, no, 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 I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm really good. Oh, someone else bring you food? He says, no, no, let me tell you about the food that nourishes my life. And he says, my food, in other words, that which energizes me, that which strengthens me, that which empowers me, that's what food does, right? He says, 
my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He says, that's what drives me in my life. What, what energizes me every day when I get up, what, what feeds me throughout the day is to do the will of my Father. That, that's what my food is in life. See that? We sang that verse, that song, we're hungry. You see, Jesus was hungry to do the will of his Father. It's what drove him. Look at the next one, John five nineteen. From the New Living Translation, he says, I assure you, the son can do nothing by himself. In other words, his whole ministry, he wasn't out there making it up as he went along, kind of doing his own thing. But he does only what he sees the father doing. And whenever I read this, I always picture a young boy, an apprentice of his father, learning the family business or trade. And you can almost picture that little boy watching his dad and then kind of imitating him, can't he? It's like whatever his father does, he does. And that's what the picture I get. Here's Jesus going through life, watching his father, and says, okay, as my father is, that's what I'm going to do. Just like a little boy would want to, to imitate his father, to please his father. See, that was the heart of Jesus. He says, whatever the father does, the son does. Next one, John 5.30, from the New Living and the Good News Translation. He says, I could do no- he says, I can do nothing in my life without consulting my Father. In fact, I judge only as God tells me, and so my judgment is right, it's correct, because I'm not trying to do what I want, but only what he who sent me wants. Do you get the heart of Jesus here? Are you picking it up? What drives him, what's the motivating force of his life? To please his Father. It's the deepest core issue. Look at the next one, John 8, 21. The one who sent me, in other words, God the Father, he's with me. He's not left me alone. Why? Because I always do what pleases him. Next one, John 12, 49. I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me, he commanded me what to say and how to say it. Next one, John 14, 31. The night he was arrested. He says, the world must learn that I love the Father. And then I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Next one, later that night, John 17, 4. I brought you glory. He's praying, to, he's praying to God now. He says, God, Father, I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. There's no question as you study the life of Jesus that habit number one for him was a habit of the heart. And the habit was to please God as his top priority. That's the heart of Jesus. Now, guess what? When you became a Christian, now, if you're not a Christian yet, this hasn't happened yet for you. It will happen once you make that decision. If you're a Christian, guess what? This passion to please God as your top priority was downloaded into your life as part of the DNA you received when you came to Jesus. Now, I don't know if you remember back when you became a Christian, but tell me if it's not true. When you became a Christian, unless you're really young and you can't remember, and the worst thing you've done is stole your brother's crayons, but when you became a Christian, one of the things that happens is you have a heightened sense of right and wrong that you didn't have before you became a Christian. And there's a new desire to please God, isn't there? It's one of the things that happens when you became a Christian. Before, you didn't really care. I'm sure God's in his universe. He's running things. It's fine, whatever. Have a good day. You're living your life. After you become a Christian, there's this new desire inside of you. Hey, what do you want me to do? How do I please you? Now, where did that come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit who's downloaded the DNA of Jesus into your life. And can I tell you something? If you're a Christian, you feel most like yourself when you are, are living to please God. 
And can I tell you something? You feel most out of kilter and out of sorts when you're doing something you know God doesn't want you to do. It's just life is not okay. Even if it's fun, even if it's pleasurable, even if you're having a great time on the outside, inside it's not okay. Inside it's eating you up. You're not okay at being at odds with your father, are you? Why? Because the DNA of Jesus has been downloaded into you and the DNA of Jesus is all about living to please him as our top priority. And here's the thing. When you first become a Christian, that's kind of downloaded to you, but it's almost like God plants that desire in you. It's like, but in seed form. You know, and as we obey and as we water, guess what? That desire to, gr- to please him grows just like to be like Jesus. It like becomes more and more like his. And so the first thing is, I want you to catch, if you, do, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, by definition, that means you live to please him. We talk about habit number one, making pleasing him our top priority. This is not like some like extra credit for super spiritual Christians. You know, this is not like, hey, you know, well, can I have the upgraded model of the car? No, this is like the four tires, okay? This is the basic version. To be a follower of Jesus means that he died for us so that we can live for him, as Paul says, okay? So you, look at, you see it in the life of Jesus. Let's go on to the next passage. The next strain that we see it in is we see it in these letters in the book of Revelation. So turn there to Revelation chapter 2. Now, let me, uh, let me set the stage. The book of Revelation is a vision. It's a vision that happens between, uh, that, that uh, God gives to John, the apostle John, on the island of Patmos. In the vision, Jesus shows up. And whenever I read this, I always think of uh, Gandalf the White in Lord of the Rings. He's got glory all around him. He's got this white sash on, this white uh, robe on, the gold sash. He's got the eyes that are burning like fire. His, his feet are like bronze burning in a furnace. He's got the sword coming out of his mouth. I mean, he's just awesome. John goes face down. He sees him. He's face down. He's freaked out. Jesus says, John, get up. It's me. I know I look a little different than the last time I saw you, but same guy. And so John gets up and he says, all right, um, what do you want me to do? He says, I'd like you to, to take some dictation here. I've got seven letters. There's these seven churches. There's one in Ephesus. There's one in Smyrna. There's one in Thyatira. There's one in Sardis, one in Laodicea. And there's seven of them. And he says, I, I have a specific message for them. And John looks up, and here's Jesus in all of his glory. In his right hand, he's got these seven stars. He's standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. Jesus explains to him the seven golden lampstands. Kind of picture this all around him. Jesus explains that these seven lampstands represent seven specific churches. The reason Jesus is moving in the midst of them, it's symbolic. He says, I'm walking in the midst of my churches. I know what's going on in my churches. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus is walking in the midst of Rocky Peak? That he knows exactly what's going on here? And he's got some opinions about it. We'll talk about that in a minute. So he says, John, I want you to write these letters and send it to these seven churches. And each letter's got some positives, some got some negatives. And so we're going to read a couple of these. We're not going to read all seven. You'll, you'll read a th- we'll just read two. You'll read a third one in your life group homework this week. But Revelation chapter 2, let's start with the first one, the church at Ephesus, chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, so here's what you're supposed to write, John. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says, I I know your deeds. First thing to tell him is, I know your deeds. 
In other words, I know what's going on in your church there at Ephesus. And uh, he starts with the positives. And it's good of Jesus. He always starts with the positives. Verse 2, he says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. These are Christians that are undergoing intense persecution. And yet they're being faithful. And Jesus says, I love that about your church. He says, I know you can't tolerate wicked men. In other words, they had some wicked people in their congregation, and they weren't just ignoring it. They were dealing with it. They were dealing with the sin in their congregation. Jesus liked that. He said, um, I know that you've tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. So there were some false teachers that had come in, but they had said, hey, this doesn't sound like the truth of God, and they'd, they'd held on doctrinally to the truth. Verse 3, you've persevered, you've endured hardships for my name. You've not grown weary. These are all good things. Jesus, I I know this, I like this. This is up, but on the other side of the coin, on the other side of the ledger, we've got to talk about some things. He says on verse 4, yet I have this against you. So here comes the negative. You have forsaken your first love. Well, what's that about? Well, first love is about Loving God is our top priority. It's loving one another as ourself, right? He says, it's really cool that you guys are so, you're kicking out the false teachers, you're dealing with sin, that's awesome. You've been really faithful under persecution, that's great. Hey, but in the process, your hearts have gotten hard. You forgot what being a follower of mine is all about. You're not loving people, you're not loving me. I'm not your top priority. And so look what he says is going to happen. He says, you need to remember the height from which you've fallen. Remember how life used to be. He says, now you need to repent or turn around and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Oh, oh, bad, bad, very bad news. Removing lampstand. Remember what lampstand is? He's standing in the middle of the seven lampstands representing that these are his churches he's walking in the midst of. He says, hey, I've got a problem with this. You've lost your first love. If you don't get that squared away, I'm going to have to take your lampstand and move you out of the circle. Put you over here. I'm going to go back and stand in the midst of my churches. Have you ever been to a church that they're still going through the motions, but Jesus hasn't shown up there in a long time? We have a lot of churches like that in our country, don't we? Around the world. So got a lot of churches that, well, they're still doing church, but Jesus hasn't been there in years. You see? Jesus says, hey, we need to get this priority thing, this kind of habit number one, this loving me, loving others. We need to get that squared away. Because if you don't, he says, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. But what I want you to catch, don't miss the big picture is that Jesus knew exactly what was going on in their church, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? And he had a specific message for that church. Okay, let's, go to, let's pick another one. Let's go down to verse 12. 2.12, to, uh, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Now, Pergamum was another city in this ancient Turkey, in that general area. And he says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. He says, I know where you live. Again, he starts with the positives. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. In other words, like Satan is alive and well in your town, and it's a tough place to live, yet you remain true to my name. 
and you did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, one of their leaders, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So he said, you, you guys are hanging tough. You're being true to me. You're not giving up your faith, even though the persecution has gotten so tough that one of your leaders was killed, you know, for it. He said, I really love that about you. You're standing firm. Okay, let's go to the negatives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, notice this will be important. We'll come back to it later. But he says, you have people there. In other words, he's writing the leaders, and he, he says, um, it's not so much that you're doing something wrong, but there's something wrong going on in your midst, and you're, you're tolerating it. Okay, that's the point. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Now, now what's he talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, there was a king named Balak who wanted to put a curse on the nation of Israel, a supernatural curse, and he hired a false prophet by the name of Balaam to put the curse on the people. But God came to Balaam and said, you can't curse these people. These people are blessed. You might as well, you know, close up your shop. It's not going to work. So Balaam goes back to Balak and says, look, I, I know you want me to do this. You're willing to pay me a lot of money, but I can't curse him. God's not going to let that, that curse light. And so Balak says, what are we going to do? And Balaam says, I got a great idea. Here's the idea. Let's send a bunch of our women over to their camp and let's show them how we do worship. And, and we'll teach them how to do idolatry. And you know how we do sexual immorality with our worship. And we'll start having sex with them. And we'll have this big party. And their God's going to get so ticked off at them that he'll bring down judgment on them. And the plan worked perfectly. And so let's fast forward to the New Testament. And Jesus says, look, in your church there at Pergamum, you're repeating the same mistake. You're allowing people in your church that are leading your church into idolatry, into sexual immorality. You're not dealing with it. He said, I got a problem with that. In verse 16, he says, you need to repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He says, look, you got a problem, you're tolerating it, either you deal with it or I'm going to deal with it, okay? And by the way, it'd be better, it's always better for us to deal with things than Jesus. <laughs> it's like dad's coming, you know. You might want to clean up your room, your father's coming home, you know. You, you can either deal with it or he'll deal with it, Okay. Now, here's what I want you to catch again, though. Jesus knew exactly what was going on in Pergamum. He, he knew exactly. Good, the bad, the ugly. He's got a specific message. Right? Can I tell you something? When I pray for our church, these letters just so often drift back in my mind. Because they're all seven letters the same way. Jesus always has a specific message for every church. And you know what I always want to know? Jesus, what's the message for Rocky Peak? What do you want to say? What are you happy about? What are you not happy about? Anything we need to change? Will you please show us what we need to do? You see? And this is the mark of a, hab a healthy church. We talked about Jesus, the driving force of his life was hab this habit of the heart to please God. Okay, so that needs to mark our lives as individuals. What marks our life as a church? Well, it's this that we get into the habit of saying, habit number one of a healthy church is saying, Jesus, what do you want to say to our church? What do you want to do in our church? We don't come to Jesus saying, well, 
But we've never done it that way before. We don't come to Jesus and say, well, I don't really like that. The issue is not about what us, the issue is about him. And the heart of a healthy church is always a church that says, Jesus, what do you want to do this time, this place, right now, what do you want to do? And a healthy church is passionate about asking that. They ask that routinely. They might not always agree to the answer, but they're always asking the same question. A few weeks ago, I met a new friend, and we were talking. He's a pastor. He's been a pastor about 30 years. He's telling me a story that happened fairly early in his, in his uh, ministry. He was pastoring a church. It was a very uh, old, traditional church back in the Midwest. Originally, it was a Swedish church, all Swedish immigrants. So all the services were in Swedish. And so um, at a certain point, uh, the church realized that if they were going to reach this new world, they had to not just speak Swedish because most people weren't speaking Swedish over here. And so they made a decision to, to move from Swedish to English, which was, of course, pretty traumatic, you know, if, if you're like native Swedish speaking. So it was a big sacrifice. And so they made that move. And then over the years, they made other changes. And then this pastor friend of mine, he comes in. And this was, again, remember, 25 years ago. And he comes in to this church and and he realizes that, boy, to reach their culture, they're going to have to make a bunch of changes. And so they, he begins slowly and wisely making some changes, and they're, they're going along well. Well, one of the changes that needed to happen was they needed to change the church service on the Sunday night church service. And, and they, they needed to move it from um, to an earlier time. Now, in the past, it was originally, in the olden days, it was at 8 o'clock at night because this gave the farmers a chance to, during harvest to harvest their crops and still come to evening church. And so, um, but of course, over the years, they moved it from 8 to 7.30, and then from 7.30 to 7. Now the proposed change on the table was to go from 7 to 6. And they had to have a congregational meeting. It was one of those churches you vote on everything, you know? What color do you think the bathroom should be? Blue. No, no, it should be green. Let's take a vote, you know? And so, and so they had to have a congregational vote on this thing. Well, there's this one lady who is an elderly lady. She'd been there for many, many years. She'd been there when it changed from the Swedish to the English. She'd seen all these changes. She was a very respected lady in the congregation. And she stands up after this long debate and she says, I'm not willing to make any more changes. So I was here when we moved from Swedish to English. I was here when we changed from 8 o'clock to 7.30. I was here when we changed from 7.30 to 7 and I'm done changing. I've gone through enough changes. Everyone was kind of stunned. We sat, sat down, they took the vote, and they voted almost unanimously to change, in spite of this person being very respected in the congregation. And the reason was, is the congregation intuitively realized that this woman was no longer asking the right questions. See, see, the right question is not what I want. The right question is not what we've always done. The mark of a healthy church is they always say to Jesus, Jesus, what do you want to say to us today? What's your letter to us today? What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What do you want to change? This is the heart of a healthy church. Now, third strand of evidence is in the book of Colossians. Why don't you turn there? Colossians chapter 1. It's a, it's a famous prayer from the Apostle Paul. Colossians 1 and verse 9. This is a church that Paul had never been to. 
He'd heard about it through a mutual friend. They were a new congregation. They were struggling. There was some false teaching coming in. He wanted to help out. Though he never heard about, had never been there, he loved these people. He had a heart for them. He was passionate about their growth. And he says from the very moment that he first heard about this young, struggling church, he began to pray for them on a regular basis. And he he opens up his heart and he shares with us what he prayed about. And in his prayer, you get to see the heart of a healthy church, what a healthy church looks like. He says in verse 9, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, so he'd never been there, we've not stopped praying for you, and we're asking God to do something. Now look what he asked God to do. We're asking God to fill you. Think of a cup that's getting filled up. We're asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. These Christians he's never met, but what's, what's his passion? His passion is, God, would you fill them to the brim? with the knowledge of your will, how you want them to live this new life now that they're Christians. And he says, that would you fill them to the knowledge of your will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In other words, he realized that for them to really get it, it was going to take the Holy Spirit opening their eyes to some things. And so he prayed, would your your Holy Spirit give them supernatural wisdom so they know how to live according to your will, your plan. But here comes verse 10. Here's our verse. Here's the bottom line. Now, why is he praying this over and over again? He says, we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. And catch this, you might want to underline this. And you may please him in every way. You see, this this is the prayer of a healthy church. What is the heartbeat of a healthy church? A A heartbeat of a healthy church is, God, would you please fill us with spiritual wisdom and understanding So we, in turn, can learn to please you in every way. Do you see that? Now, do you see this habit working through the whole New Testament? This habit, number one. It was the the habit of the heart of Jesus to please his Father. Bottom line, driving force of his life. It was the habit of the seven churches. They were supposed to, to be healthy. They needed to say, Jesus, what do you want us to do? The right, the wrong, change. You make the call. And the habit of the Apostle Paul in praying for a healthy church is that a healthy church is one that's always saying, God, would you fill us with the knowledge of your will so that we can please you in every way. You see that? All the way through. Habit number one just is, kind of defines what it means to be a believer. Now, one more thing before we're done. We need to talk about, I think it's on your last page, about habit number one and accountability. One of the marks of a healthy church is not only do they make a commitment to please God as their top priority, not only do they make it a habit, not only take steps in that direction, but one of the marks of a healthy church is they actually hold each other accountable in the process. They say, I want to please Jesus, you want to please Jesus, let's help each other, let's hold each other accountable. And if ever one of us gets off track too far, let's kind of reel each other in, you see? It's one of the marks of a healthy church. They hold each other accountable. Now this was the problem in the church at Pergamum. Remember we looked at this a few minutes ago? The church of Pergamum, back in Revelation chapter 2, it says, remember what Jesus said, you have some people there who are pursuing the teaching of Balaam and Balak. All right? Notice what he, he did not say, you all are doing this. What he said was, you have some people there and you're not dealing with it. You see? One of the marks of a healthy church 
is that they understand to stay healthy, that when there is obvious sin in their midst, and let me be real clear, I'm not talking about black or gray areas that Christians disagree on. I'm talking about black and white sin. You know, the kind of, there's, in the New Testament, there's all these sinless, is, you know, do not be deceived. Those who do X, Y, Z will not enter the kingdom of God, these long lists over and over again. These are like the clear moral code of the Christian community. And he says, one of the marks of a healthy church is that you're going to hold each other accountable to this. You're not going to wink at sin. You're going to deal with it. You're going to move towards it. There's a great passage in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 5. We looked at this last June. I'm sure all of you memorized it. But I thought we might look at it once again for the new people. So let's uh, go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul just spells out how this works out. Now, the church of Corinth... They had a situation going on. It happened to involve sexual sin. Now, he's going to list in this passage many other examples of other types of sin that we're supposed to hold each other accountable for. But in this particular case, they had a a situation where a man was sleeping with his stepmother. And the church wasn't dealing with it. It was like, well, whatever, you know. And uh, and so they just weren't really, uh, they were just kind of tolerating it. And so Paul had written them a letter and says, guys, what are you doing? If someone's like living in blatant sin, you can't hang out. You can't be friends. You can't, you know, go to dinner with them. You can't, they can't be part of your church if someone's in blatant sin. And what they thought he meant was don't hang out with anyone who is in blatant sin, Christian or non-Christian. So now Paul's writing back saying, no, no, that's not what I meant. It's like if you, you know, if you couldn't hang out with people who are in blatant sin, you couldn't go to work on Monday. You know, it's like... Um, no, no, no. I'm talking about if someone claims to be a follower of Jesus, but they're living in blatant sin, you can't hang out with them. They can't be a part of your church. It's like fish or cut bait. You're either in or you're out. But you can't like follow Jesus and reject Jesus at the same time. You know, you, you, you got to make a decision. And so let's look what he says. Chapter 5, verse 9. He said, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. That was his previous letter. He says, but not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy. See, he's given a bunch of sins here. Or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. Verse 11. He says, but now I'm writing, I'm clarifying that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother. Now underline that, okay? Self-identified Christian. You see that? Anyone who calls himself, are you a follower of Jesus? Yes. Are you a Christian? Yes. That's what he's talking about. So if someone's a self-identified Christian, don't associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is living in high-handed sin, who's sexually immoral, or greedy, or an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, we call him a partier, a swindler. You know, it's kind of Joe's mechanic, and he rips people off. He pads the bills. He's part of your church, you know. He says, no, 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 you can't tolerate that. He says, with such a man, do not even eat. Don't go to Rubio's with him. Sit. Hey, meet you at Starbucks. No, we're not going to do relationship right now. Now notice, he says, verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? You know, if someone's not a follower of Jesus yet, it's not our job to hold them accountable to our moral code. You know, they're not a follower of Jesus. They... You know, it's like if they want to kind of do whatever, that's between them and God. They're not part of the community. What business is of mine to judge those outside the church? But he said, are you not to judge those inside 
It's interesting as Christians how we'll flip this around sometimes, won't we? We'll judge those on the outside but won't deal with the inside. It's the exact opposite. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, expel the wicked man from among you. You know, in my ministry, I've had the privilege of working with many single adults. And obviously, if you're single, one of the litmus tests of whether you're serious about following Jesus is the whole sexual purity issue. I mean, it's just a really hard thing, especially in this culture. And so you can find out real, real quickly if, if someone's serious about following Jesus just by saying, well, how's this area going, you know? And so often in that ministry, in my ministry, there would be um, people that I would need to meet with that I knew one way or another were living in sexual sin. And so I'd meet with them, and we'd always, you know, have a meeting, and it always kind of went the same way. I, I would start off, and I'd first of all, I'd say, are you a follower of Jesus? Can we talk about this? I want to talk about this. I mean, first thing you know, are you a follower of Jesus? Have you given your life to Christ? Are you a Christian? And I'd define what I meant by that. And if they said, well, no. It's like, oh, okay. Well, I just wanted to know, because, you know, I heard you guys were sleeping together and stuff, but if you're not Christian, it's none of my business, you know? End of discussion. And I'd say, you know, if you're going to be part of this community here, single adults or whatever, we'd ask you to honor those standards or whatever, but if you don't want to be a part of it, what you do in your own time? It's up to you. I mean, you know. But, of course, usually they'd say, yes, we're followers of Jesus. And I'd say, well, can you help me understand then? Because Jesus is very clear on this about sexual purity, and could you help me understand that? we talk about that and usually you know it'd be all kinds of excuses or whatever and those excuses would get kind of quieter as we'd talk longer and then i said, well can i show you a passage of scripture and they say well sure i said okay well here we go we go to first corinthians 5 we read it together and say can you see this how this kind of puts me in an awkward position because you're claiming to be a brother you're claiming to be a brother and sister of mine and i'm sort of the pastor over this ministry and this passage seems to me pretty clear that, that I can't allow this to go on. Can you see how I might get that? Yep. <laughs> and so I say, well, here's how, how it works. I love you. I care about you. I want you to get the most out of life. I truly believe the best way to do that is to pursue sexual purity. But it's your choice. You know, you choose whether to follow Jesus or not. That's your choice. But I have to give you a choice. If you choose to follow Jesus, we'd love to have you be part of our community. But if you're not going to choose to follow Jesus, then that means you have to choose not to be part of this community because this community is about following Jesus. You see? So the choice is yours. I can't make that choice. The choice is yours. But just kind of spell out the choice. And you know what happened nine times out of ten? Every once in a while, there'll be someone really belligerent. But nine times out of ten, there'll be tears coming down their eyes. And they'd say, no one's ever held me accountable for this before. I know this is the wrong thing to do. It's eating me up inside. I feel horrible about it, but I've never had help and no one's ever held me accountable. And so we want to come alongside. We want to help you do the right thing. But we're serious about following Jesus here. And we understand that if we're not serious about this and if we let this go on, we understand it's contagious. It'll bring down the whole house, you see. And so we'd work together from that point on and to help them following Jesus. Here's what I want you to catch. The New Testament says very clearly that not only is habit number one to be pleasing God as our top priority, it says that for the church, to be a healthy church, we have to hold each other accountable for habit number one. 
It's not just that we trumpet it. It's not just some of us endorse it. But if we're going to be a healthy church, then we have to help each other by holding each other accountable, right? Okay. I said at the beginning, this is the most important of the seven habits because all the rest will flow from it. In the coming weeks, we'll talk about what does it mean to please Jesus in the area of our relationships? What does it mean to please Jesus in terms of developing our personal relationship and alone time with him? What does it mean to please Jesus in terms of our finances or our giftings in life, our spiritual gifts, our service to God? What does it mean to look like? And we'll, we'll look at six other areas. But can you see how if we don't have number one right, it really doesn't matter? What are we going to do, pick and choose? Are we going to be like the church of Pergamum that had this going for them, but this not so good? And what did Jesus say? Well, that's okay. You know, eight out of ten, you're doing pretty well. That's great. I'm fortunate I grade on a curve. No, no, no. He said things like, hey, if you don't get this together, I'm leaving. If you don't get this together, I'm coming to deal with it, right? Well, I don't know about you. I don't want to be a church that Jesus has to come to deal with it because we won't. I'm not up for that. Now, I've been there and done that in my life. You know, times where I thought I knew better. I've experienced God's discipline. I don't want to go there again, you see. So that's where it's at. Habit number one, pleasing God is our top priority. That's the first habit of the company of the committed. And like I said, in six weeks, you'll get a chance to make a decision whether you want to be a part of the company. But for now, you've got six weeks to pray, six weeks to think, six weeks to come before God, evaluate your life in these different areas, and see together if we as a church want to present ourselves before him as a church that will please him as our top priority. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time to be together and a chance to examine these things and to really think about some of the basic things in life, like what's most important? What's most important to you? What do you ask of us? What will bring us the greatest fulfillment, bring you the greatest joy? Lord, today we've looked at that foundation, habit number one. I pray for us, Lord, as in these next six weeks as we evaluate our lives that we will begin to, as a church, come together and with one voice be able to say, we make this commitment. We will not always be perfect. We will fail. It will sometimes be two steps backwards and three steps forward. But we're going to pick ourselves up because we know that our greatest joy in life and our greatest fulfillment comes when we are being who you made us to be. We're responding to that. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to talk to those of you who have never given your life to Christ. It's not that you haven't heard this story. You know the story how Jesus came, how he died for sins, how he rose from the dead. You get that. You've even believed that. But you've never had a time in your life where you've asked Jesus to become your leader, to take over your life, to change you and make you like him and to reserve a spot, a place in eternity with him. And you realize that it's really sort of pointless to go through and talk about these other six habits if this first habit, you've never established that in your life. You've never asked Jesus into your life. And if that's you, I want to give you a chance right now to pray and to ask Jesus to take over your life and forgive your sins and make you a new person. 
And so I'm going to pray a prayer. As I'm praying it, just pray along in your hearts. Dear Jesus, I give you my life. I admit that I have not been walking with you. And I want to get right. I ask you to come into my life, take charge of my life, forgive my sins, send your spirit into my life, change me from the inside out, and reserve a place for me with you in the next life. While our heads are bowed, if you just pray that prayer, in a couple minutes we'll be taking the final offering and registration cards. I'd ask you to do me a simple favor. If you just write on there, Mike, I asked Jesus into my life, or Mike, I gave my life to Christ today. And what to do that trigger a couple things. It'll allow us to pray for you this week in your new journey. But also, I will send you a letter with some suggested steps to help you out as you get started. And you can just write that out and drop in the offering. Lord, as a church of Rocky Peak, we start this adventure, seven commitments of the company that committed. We, we start this exploring this, what this means today. We'll be doing that for the next many weeks. We pray you'd be with us each step of the way. Show us what it means to be a church that pleases you as our top priority. For your honor and for our joy, we pray this in your name. Amen. The Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, He died for all that those who live should live for Him. That pretty much says it, doesn't it? <laughs> if you've accepted His offer of death for you, that offer comes with the understanding that he died for you so that you could live for him. It's habit number one. May we be a church that embraces habit number one where the deepest passion of our life, the top priority, top goal, is that we would please him at all costs, wherever he leads, whatever he wants, whatever he says, whenever he says it. This time, this place, his way always. That's habit number one. May God give us the grace to do that as we take this journey together this fall. God bless you. We'll see you next week.